This is Moral of the Story. Interesting people telling their favorite short stories and then breaking them down to understand what makes them so good. I'm your host, Max Chapovsky. On today's episode, we have Steven Dime, the co-founder and CEO of Flowers for Dreams. Long before it was cool to be a socially conscious business, Steven and team wanted to make something already fantastic, fresh flowers delivered to your door, even more fantastic by donating a portion of each sale to a local charity. They've donated over $500,000 to date, all the while making people happy. Stephen is a North Shore native, but likes to hit up far-flung corners of the world, including New Zealand, Patagonia, and more. And more importantly, he's not afraid to take sides, writing polarizing op-eds against Amazon's HQ2, turning down business for those who are unwilling to check a box, condemning racism and Nazism, and more. We'll have links to all of that in the notes. Stephen, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So tell me your story. How did you end up where you are now? Yeah, you know, it's a long story. I've been at the the flower business for almost a decade. Uh, I started when I was 19 years old on a little flower cart outside of a college graduation ceremony, hawking flowers and uh, trying to make a little money to pay for school. And uh, it slowly turned into Flowers for Dreams, now in uh, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, across the Midwest. Cool. So set the stage. What should we know before you get into the story? So I'm going to share a story that's been passed on for years, uh, now generations in my family. It's uh, a story of purpose and perspective that's very near and dear to my family. It centers on my grandparents, Mesh and Emma Sosemski, who are both Holocaust survivors. Uh, the Holocaust uh, has weighs very heavy on everything we do in as a family still to this day. And uh, I hope to share a story that tells a little bit about it. All right, let's get into it. Tell me a story. So this is a, a tale towards the end of the war. For those of you who are unfamiliar, the, the Holocaust was one of the most horrific human tragedies in our history where uh, the Nazis of Germany s systematically murdered 6 million Jews among many others, simply because of who they were and how they lived. Uh, and my grandfather, Mesh, uh, was from Poland. My, my grandmother, Emma, was from Hungary. They lost many, many family members, uh, and thankfully they made it here, and that's why I'm here today. Uh, the tale I'm gonna tell is toward the end of the war about my grandfather, Mesh, and his older brother, Leon. Uh, in 1940, at the beginning of the war, uh, the Nazis were raiding homes across Poland at the time, and uh, they raided my grandfather's home. He was just a teenager at the time, one of five children living with nine of his family members, and all of his family but himself and his older brother, Leon, on that day were rounded up and sent to a concentration camp now known as Treblinka, infamously. He was left with Leon, and instead they were enlisted as slaves into hard labor at a nearby factory to assist the German war effort. They had value to the Germans as strong male teenagers. And over the next five years of the war, stripped of their free will and their dignity and their livelihood with zero word from any of that, those family members, uh, Leon and, and my grandfather, Mesh, uh, worked and worked without pay, fearing for their life, seeing starvation and senseless murder all around them. That was their, their new life. 
They worked in a munitions factory outside their their old town, in a steel mill, in a limestone quarry in Buchenwald, an also infamous death camp of the Nazi Germans. And finally, by early 1945, they were transported to uh, the last work site, to Dresden, to build another factory for the Nazis. Uh, They slaved there for a few months until the spring, I believe it was March or April of 1945, the war was winding down. Of course, they had no idea of that. Uh, but they were woken up for it was another day of ruthless hard labor as, as prisoners. And it was announced abruptly that the factory they just started to build was being closed. The Nazis were closing this new factory. And the prisoners, this, this was not unfamiliar to them. They had been now at many different sites. But this time, the prisoners were each greeted kind of bizarrely with a loaf of bread when they arrived at the factory and told to turn around, turn back, and simply start marching. Unknown to where, or for how long, or why, but with Nazi guards all around them. This march, this unsuspecting march, unclear, would prove a very fateful march for my grandfather, Mesh and his older brother, Leon, who at this point had been joined at the hip for five years, the last known members of their family. They'd made a commitment earlier to each other in the war that no matter what happened to the other, they would keep themselves, their legacy alive. They would find each other and they would live for one another. Uh, My grandfather would tell us this often. Two days into the march, uh, no more bread, no water. Uh, They started hearing loud noises overhead, planes buzzing as he would describe it, gunfire, Uh, And there had been some rumbling and rumors at this point that the Russians might be advancing against their Nazi counterparts. Uh, The Nazi guards started to panic and finally around nighttime forced all the Jewish prisoners on this march face down into the mud with rifles in their back and and told them to shut up. My grandfather, Mesh, his older brother, Leon, joined at the hip, lie down next to each other face down in fear for their lives yet again all night fully awake and scared until the sun rose the next morning to more gunfire, more bombing. And yet again, they were told to get up and march. At this point, many prisoners couldn't. Emaciated, they were hungry and weak, and instead they were dispensed of and killed in front of him. But Mesh and Leon kept going with the other prisoners. And a few hours into this march now on on day three, The Nazi guards panicked again, as he would uh, describe. Little direction, very chaotic and and disorganization. They they again forced the Jews down on their knees and on their faces for what my grandfather, Mesh and Leon worried might be their, their last breaths, their execution. And at this moment, they thought it may be their last, their final chance to avoid murder, make an escape, a daring escape and reclaim their freedom. So they attempted that, risking whatever they had left. And uh, they jumped up, ran away as the Nazis were panicked and distracted to a nearby cemetery, uh, with, which I guess was in, in sight. Uh, and they hid behind gravestones just out of sight of the guards and the other prisoners. They laid there for what was a couple hours, frightened that they'd be captured or seen until finally somehow the Nazis, yet again, got the prisoners up and marched away. The coast was clear. Then they made this decision. For reasons we'll never fully understand and never fully understood hearing this growing up, 
they decided to split up. My grandfather, Mesh, one way towards a more rural area. Leon, his older brother, the other. My grandfather, Mesh, was rescued by Polish farmers, given new clothes to replace his striped prison uniform, given a bath and food for the first time in days. But we don't know what happened with Leon. My grandfather would never see his older brother again. My grandfather, Mesh, once the war ended, spent the next several years looking for any trace of his family and Leon in particular. This is his older brother he'd made a commitment to that had protected him through the entire war, trained him to be a carpenter and stay alive with that value to the Nazis. And no luck, Leon was never found. My grandfather, though, ended up in a displaced persons camp in, uh, run by the Soviets at the time, a refugee camp where he'd meet his wife, Emma, my grandmother, also a Holocaust survivor. They had their first child, my Aunt Becky. And by grace and some good fortune, after so much bad fortune, they got on a boat to America where he'd find work. He ended up actually opening a bakery ultimately and building a family and dedicated so much of his future and reasons for living to Leon. By the time we came in the picture as grandkids, we'd hear these stories of Leon often, this story in particular. And for me, not only is it so memorable and, and the Holocaust and its weight on our family, but it's a story of purpose and really perspective, uh, resilience and regret uh, for my grandfather, how to honor the past and kind of change the sadness of the past to ultimately use to find meaning, meaning for life to find a why and reinforce purpose for living. And it always gives me that, that perspective that I need uh, to, to move on and move forward. Do you remember your reaction the first time you heard that story? It was very fantastical to us as kids. It didn't seem real. Uh, the other nine members of his home never found. His sister was, uh, my great aunt Branca. But it just always felt out of a fairy tale and not a very good one. And so I remember listening to it over and over again until I was mature enough to fully digest and it, it didn't feel real, very surreal. Did you hear it directly from your grandfather? Many times. And so how would he sort of talk about that moment when they decided to split up? You know, it's the part that perplexes all of our family. Why did they split up? What was the reason they decided when it seemed the coast was clear to finally part ways with no other family? It wasn't a question that we easily asked him. The fact that he was telling us these stories, these difficult, difficult stories was kind of enough. He actually gave a speech at the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Springfield uh, about 10 or 15 years ago before he passed away and talks about Leon. It weighed on him. It created an immense amount of guilt that he lived with forever, but also that, that meaning and that purpose. And we just know that name, Leon, forever, uh, but still don't, don't know why they split up on that, on that afternoon. To me, the, it's such a powerful irony that Leon, the brother that was lost, and you don't know what happened to him, his name lives on so powerfully 
because his presence is almost larger than life. It's pretty special. My oldest brother, I'm, a, I'm one of three brothers. My oldest brother, I'm the youngest. His Hebrew or Jewish name is Leon. So he really gets to carry this with him, uh, an extension of Leon, an extension of Leon's memory. Yeah. What is the moral of the story to you? The scale of the story is so enormous. It's really hard to bring it down to earth and make it resonate for anybody. And sometimes there is no clear moral of the story. I think what it reminds me so much, and it's this first story I think of uh, when I think of storytelling, because my grandfather would tell it to us so often, is that purpose. My grandfather was very clear and convicted that he was living for all of those that didn't make it. Leon stands out among the rest for us because of this story and the many stories of him. He was his older brother. He looked up to him. And we all have a Leon, maybe not a person, or it could be a moment or an event. Maybe it's a mentor. Maybe it's a family member. Um, you know, who is your Leon? What's your Leon? Is I think something we can all ask one another. And I think about that a lot. What am I living for? Why do I do what I do? And this is a story for me, above all, because of the scale that gives me perspective that everything I do in my daily life, the struggles I encounter and confront pale in comparison to what my grandfather had to go through even after the war. And that, that always gives me a sense of clarity of purpose. Yeah. In uh, man's search for meaning, that is a big part of the narrative is among ruin, among death and destruction and devastation, you have to turn inward to find your meaning. And at the same time, you have to turn outward to help others who may be lost. So it's a really powerful, um, it's a really powerful lesson. Uh, Stories I feel like, especially those that are really kind of timeless events that are based on timeless events and really powerful, I feel like they get kind of tweaked over time. Do you feel like, or have you, have you noticed that over time, this story has evolved? Yeah, we call it in Yiddish, a bubba mice. This is certainly not a Bubba Mice. This is a very real story and means a lot to our whole family. But of course, yeah, the, the, the story as it was told and retold many times, uh, it seemed as if it took on new meaning or there were more fantastical elements and more detail. And, you know, I think in, in this case, it was important to me as I told this story here to make sure I got the facts right. Uh, because I think our, that weight I keep talking about on our family is one of retelling and keeping on and making sure these memories never get forgotten. So my family moved to America because we were able to claim religious asylum as Jews in Ukraine. And uh, I, have, I have family members, you know, uh, generations back that we lost in the Holocaust. And I went backpacking in Europe uh, in 2005, and I love 
photography. Wherever I am, it's either pictures or videos or something like that just to capture the moment. And I took a ton of pictures as I was backpacking through Europe. It was very important to me to make one stop. And that stop was in Auschwitz. And so I actually, it was August. And, um, and I remember arriving there and it, looking at the train tracks. There's one set of train tracks that leads into the camp. And it splits into many train tracks so that they could get the prisoners off the trains. And I remember vividly seeing one rose placed on those train tracks. And I took a picture of that. It was a really powerful kind of symbolic imagery. Um, but I took some pictures there and all of those pictures were in black and white. That was my sort of way to say, not only does this not need color to tell the story, but the people who were at this camp, their lives were devoid of color at the time that they were there. And I remember I took a picture when I, uh, they, they were giving tours throughout the, the facilities and they walked us into one of the gas chambers. And looking at the wall, you could see fingernail scratches, four parallel scratches, a few inches long. And I took a picture of that kind of looking up at the ceiling. And I just remember being almost unable to grasp the magnitude of what happened there. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy, but I think stories like Leon's help people who are so far removed from those atrocities to still find meaning in their lives. Um, so let's talk about storytelling in general, because that was a really powerful one. I think it was, um, it was well told. Um, what do you think makes for a good story? Yeah, and I just want to, can I add a point there? I think yeah. what the story, you're right, the scale is so significant. Seeing the scratch marks in the in the gas chambers is really powerful. Until you see it, you won't really feel it. What this story and Leon as a figure in our in our family's history, what it does is it reminds us that each being is significant. We are humans. It's a very human story. Uh, the Holocaust is now just a chapter in a textbook for many. Uh, and this is a very human story. And I think to, to your question, storytelling generally is, in this case, was a way for the young ones to understand. Uh, we really understood the magnitude, again, the scale of this atrocity when it was pared down to this one story of my grandfather and his brother and their journey together joined at the hip for five years in hard labor with no word from their family. It made it very real. I looked to my brother, both of my brothers, I looked to my parents and can't imagine, can't imagine it. So it, it again, it's that perspective that's so significant is it gave me perspective as a kid and it still gives me perspective to the, this day. And I think really powerful stories, if nothing else, they give you perspective. I love that. Uh, in your life, how do you use storytelling personally, professionally, however? I use stories a lot in business. You know, we sell flowers, but we, we're really selling stories with our flowers. So we're, we've always been very good on Instagram, 
for one. We used to be great on Snapchat before uh, uh, it kind of tapered off for us. But we'd always think about from a social media perspective, how can we use our bouquets to advance causes we care about, to share stories in our community. That's who Flowers for Dreams is. We use our bouquets to promote the causes of justice and charity that we really care about as a team and as a company. So it's always been very much a part of Flowers for Dreams DNA. Does every story have to have a moral? No, but every story that's good should have an effect and an impact. So there doesn't always have to be a lesson, but it's important for whom you're telling the story to that they feel something and absorb some meaning. Then maybe the moral isn't within the story, but it's meta, it's around the story. Kind of, yeah. That's kind of I'd cool. agree. What's one of your favorite books that you think gets storytelling right? You know, I, one that comes to mind right now is Just Mercy. They just made a movie of it. It's about a Harvard-educated African-American attorney choosing, opting out of the big dollar corporate law and instead starting a civil rights practice uh, in the South. And it's an amazing, it's a real story, much like Mason Leon's. And it's an amazing, again, human take on the unequal justice and inequities in our in our uh, criminal justice system, in our legal system, told through the lens of someone who's very well educated and you know can speak many languages. So it stands out to me as being an exceptional story, a very human story that brings to light a lot of the problems and inequities in our justice system. There are people listening that want to become better storytellers, right? I mean, I think everybody at their core loves being able to tell a good story that connects with the audience that maybe teaches them a lesson. What advice would you have for those who want to become better storytellers? Well, let's stick with the theme. I think you need to be human. It's not about speed. It might be okay to say, um, sometimes it's more about the humanity of the story. Does it feel manufactured or does it feel real and authentic? When I talk to my team or when I tell this story now to new family members, believe it or not, we now have what would be great grandkids to Mesh and Emma. I make sure to tell the story not as a tale, not as a fairy tale or a harrowing tale of some long away, some long ago, far away uh, moment, but of something that when they look to their right and their left, their brother and their sister, that they can feel and that they can believe and that they understand. So I think storytelling has to be very real and authentic and human. It's so interesting applying that to the world of video. When I was first starting, uh, I remember I was so focused on a beautiful image, right? Something that is just well-framed and well-lit and the, the composition is perfect. What I realized is actually what's more important than the image is a powerful story because you can have amazing, amazing stories that maybe didn't have the most beautiful composition or lighting, but among the two, between those two, the, the, the narrative and the quality of the image, narrative wins all day. 
And it's because I think if people can connect with a story, they stay engaged. And if they stay engaged, then obviously you have, you know, a good audience. Absolutely. The caption matters more than the post and the than the picture for sure. Caption over picture. Totally. But if you have a good caption and a good picture, then, then you can be like humans of New York. <laughs> Correct. That's the combination. Cool, man. Well, that about does it. Uh, Steven Dime, CEO and co-founder of Flowers for Dreams. Thank you for being on the show and sharing this amazing story. So great to be here. Thank you for letting me. For Steven's full bio, links to what we talked about, and then some, head over to mosspod.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast on. This was Moral of the Story. I'm Max Chapovsky. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.